You're listening to the Nashville Libre Conference podcast. In July of 2019, there was a weekend gathering in Nashville with lectures, workshops, conversations, and meals together. The theme of the conference was being human in a fragmenting world. Each episode of this podcast is one of the lectures or workshops from that conference. In order to receive email updates about the podcast, including lecture handouts, articles, and books referenced in the lecture, please subscribe for updates at NashvilleLibreeConference.com. Today's episode features Jock McGregor. Jock is the director of the Labrie branch in Rochester, Minnesota, and his lecture is about T.S. Eliot's idea of a Christian society. Again, it's a delight to be here in Nashville, all the way down from Minnesota. It's so wonderful to be at a conference that I'm not having to organize myself, which is my usual role up in Rochester. And when uh, you've got a large conference on, you don't have time to do anything as mundane as speak, you know. Uh, so I don't normally uh, do talks uh, as part of that uh, conference. So it was very sweet of the folk in Nashville to invite me to come down and uh, present some material. And I thought uh, this afternoon that um, <clears throat> I would focus on T.S. Eliot's idea of a Christian society. But just fair warning, we're not really going to be looking at T.S. If you're here as a great fan of his poetry, you're going to be disappointed. So just be aware. That's not the theme as if you read, I hope you read the little blurb underneath. The theme really is what I I like to call the uneasy engagement that contemporary evangelicals have with our wider culture. In my previous workshop I talked about Christ and culture. How do we relate as Christians into our surrounding culture? And I want to continue that um, examining what has become an increasingly uneasy engagement with the culture. As our culture is more obviously post-Christian, how should Christians position themselves? It's a hot topic. There's a lot of publishing. Many authors have addressed it. Uh, There's a good number of paradigms or options being presented of how we're supposed to do it and how others have done it wrong and how we should do it right, and so on. And I find all this is leading actually to a lot of confusion, which is partly why in my previous workshop I sort of went back to basics a little bit, just to kind of get our head clear. We miss the wood for the trees sometimes with all these different ideas. So I'm glad to speak into a subject that is, uh, I think, very important, important subject of discussion at the moment, but is indeed actually a very important subject in the history uh, of Labrie. And it's at the heart of Labrie's teaching is to engage the world in which uh, Christ has uh, sent us. So where do we start as we uh, look at uh, this idea of engaging the culture? And um, I'd like to start... Um, in a rather unlikely place, uh, I'd like to start with the thoughts of a poet, not a theologian or a philosopher or a, you know, a sociologist, a poet, a British poet at that. 
uh, and a British poet of the last century. I'd like indeed to start uh, with T.S. Eliot. And most folk know Eliot, of course, because of his wonderful poetry. Many consider him the father of modern poetry. Certainly, he dominated the 20th century in English poetry. You can immediately uh, think of The Wasteland or The Four Quartets, many others. He was one of the greatest and most influential poets of the 20th century. But do people remember, or do we realize, that he was actually a Christian? He's still lionized in the literature as a great poet, but he was also a Christian. He thought deeply and wrote, I think, very boldly on a Christian view of society and culture. I found that really quite surprising that a person with that sort of a background who had achieved such success and such prominence in one discipline would take the risk really as a Christian, stepping beyond these disciplinary boundaries to address the widest concerns of his society and his culture. And in 1938 he published a series of lectures under the title The Idea of a Christian Society. I have the book up there. And I want to use this this afternoon as a guide to our discussion. What can we learn all these years later from this British poet, Eliot? Well, firstly, Eliot unashamedly and unequivocally posited a Christian future. Eliot was bold enough to affirm what, if you really think about it, every Christian should hope for and work for, a Christian society. After all, wouldn't you want your family to be a Christian family? It would seem an obvious implication of being a Christian yourself. And by extension, wouldn't that be something one would hope for, work for, a Christian society. See, even in his day, many saw a post-Christian future. We take it now as read that we're in a post-Christian context. Back then, there were certainly more remnants of the Christian past, but already it was appearing extremely passé. So it took even in his day, a great deal of courage, and I would say especially for a person of his prominence, part of the intellectual elite, the thought leaders of the day, who had already achieved so much stature, to take the risk, the courage, to assert a Christian vision. And in the idea of a Christian society, Eliot, as I say, boldly posits a Christian future. Now, he makes it clear in his book that he's not talking about a nation where everyone is a Christian. We know that the weeds and the tares are always with us, and we can never divine them out. 
He is not positing a nation where everyone is a Christian, or even less, where the state is theocratic, or in some way the church sort of runs things, like we see in Iran, right? He is not talking about those sorts of ideas and visions of the Christian future. He simply means that the society at large, in its institutions and in its manners, would be shaped by Christian ideals and values. He rightly understood that every society, every nation, must have some sort of galvanizing ideal, something around which we gather and call ourselves a society or a nation that uh, drives us forward into the future, motivating concepts that give coherence and direction to a group of people, an idealized goal, if you like, that that society is trying to realize. He asks, what, if any, is the idea of the society in which we live? Why are we doing this? What's its telos, its goal? To what end is it arranged? Why are we submitting ourselves to this order? If the central idea of a society is not Christian then it will be something else. It has to be something. And in his mind, Christians at the very least should have this as an ideal themselves for their own societies. But do we? As I reread this book recently, I thought, do we actually even talk about this anymore? We often, and I often hear discussions about our past especially here in the United States. How was America founded? Was it founded as a Christian nation, thinking of the early pilgrims? Or was it founded as a secular nation, thinking of the founding fathers in the Constitution, the different influences, lots of debates, right, about our past. Was it Christian or not? I hear certainly debates about our present. You know, are we post-Christian? To what degree are we post-Christian? But I seldom hear any real discussion about what a Christian future for our country might look like. It seems that such thinking is now beyond the pale. Why does this basic idea no longer captivate us? I think there's a number of reasons why this idea of a Christian future for the United States or for any Western culture might seem, at this point, unthinkable. Firstly, there's the principle of the separation of church and state, right? Which, in this country especially, is a bedrock of civic consciousness. It's in the Constitution. I think it's a good idea, actually. I have no problem with it. But for many folk, it appears, even for many Christians, that it seems to necessarily imply a secular country. 
Is that what is in the Constitution? That we necessarily should become a secular country where the separation means the church is separated out onto a small island within the wider culture. Does that follow? Keeping the institutions of government and church separate seems to me a very good idea. But marginalizing Christian thought, Christian values, to my mind, simply allows other worldviews to dominate. I think Elliot is right. If Christian ideas and ideals are not shaping our society, then other ideals and other ideas, other ideologies, if you like, secularism, for instance, or humanism, will naturally fill the gap. Neutrality is not only undesirable, it's impossible. Secondly, there is this fear and reluctance around the idea of legislating morality. If we had a Christian society, would that mean that Christians were sort of imposing their beliefs, legislating Christian morals? Is a Christian society one where Christian morality is imposed through legislation, through sheer force of government action? Possibly there are some who fall into that strange way of thinking, but it's certainly not intrinsic at all to Christian thinking. After all, one of the central tenets of the Christian faith is the distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament, which pivots on the limits of the law, the limits of the law to produce morality. You cannot legislate morality even if you want to. That's the lesson of the law, that the law is limited. We understand that law has an important role. It can limit immorality. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, because law cannot produce righteousness, but it's for lawbreakers and rebels to create a basic framework within which all can live. Morality cannot be legislated, but the question isn't whether morality would be legislated, but whether our legislation is moral at all. Are we considering a moral framework as we consider the uh, dealing with law and order in a culture? I think the the uh, idea of legislating morality is a straw man that is not intrinsic to the gospel understanding of how Christianity shapes and changes lives. The law is there for the restraint of evil, and in doing so we need to have a clear understanding of the distinction between good and evil, which is why our law should be moral rather than immoral. But we do not envisage the legislation of morality or certainly not the legislation of convictions. What about that? Maybe a Christian society would impose Christianity. 
can we think of a Christian society in a pluralist concept, context? We know that even though the vast majority of Americans today even still identify as Christian, we know that there are significant minorities who do not, and a growing minority who call themselves nuns, you know, none of the above. We are definitely a pluralist society. Does this situation and the freedom of conscience and the desire not to impose on people's conscience, does this mean that a Christian society is impossible? I don't think so at all. After all, as Elliot already said, a Christian society is not a society where everyone is a Christian. But it is a society whose ideals and values are compatible with Christian ideals and values. What does that mean? It just means that the good and the true, the just and the compassionate will be good and beneficial throughout society for all the people of that society, whatever their personal convictions. Christian and non-Christian alike benefit from a just society, from a compassionate society, from the good, from the true, from the beautiful. Christian and non-Christian alike can share and enjoy these things. Tolerance, after all, is a Christian virtue. We don't need the secularists to tell us and badger us about being tolerant as Christians. We are taught by Romans 12, 8, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. To tolerate people who are different in their views is an essential Christian virtue. Freedom of conscience arose actually in the West, in our own European history, precisely as a result of careful Christian thought, admittedly with mistakes having been made along the way, which we have to acknowledge, nonetheless over time, Christian Europe developed and understood a necessary recognition of the freedom of conscience that results uh, in the uh, pluralism that we enjoy today. There's no reason why non-Christians should not be better off in a Christian society. If your sense of a Christian society means that non-Christians would not be better off, then you need to rethink what you have in mind. But properly thought through from Christian fundamentals, a Christian society would benefit as the rain falls upon the just and on the unjust under God's providential dispensation. So in our providential ordering of things, uh, or beneficial ordering of things, justice, beauty, truth should benefit all. And this brings me to my fourth consideration, the common good. We need to make it clear as we think about a Christian future, a Christian society, that it is there for the common good. 
Certainly not just to make Christians comfortable. The idea that the pursuit of a Christian culture is so that we as Christians can feel really comfortable is entirely misguided. After all, Christianity doesn't make Christians comfortable. If it does, there's something wrong. Christianity, the church, the prophetic tradition, the priestly vocation, brotherly affection and love is all geared towards disturbing us in our unsanctified complacency. Not making us comfortable, but discipling us towards a better and better manifestation of the good. Doing right and doing right by others is never self-serving. If we are seeking the good, it will never be self-seeking. And if we are seeking the good in our culture, it will always be the common good. There is no other good than the common good. For if the good you're seeking is good for me, you know, what's good for me, that's not really good. We are not self-serving, nor are we thinking of a situation that is necessarily easy, easier on us. After all, we have a grander vision of the kingdom of God and of his, uh, uh, the beauty of the life that he gives us to lead in freedom that is so far transcendent of our selfish needs or our personal comfort. We struggle for it. We press towards it. It is not an easy path that we glide into. If that's the Christian society you want where you can just glide into a comfortable spot, you're not thinking about Christianity correctly. If we're engaging the culture for our own self-interest, trying to make it easy on ourselves, we've missed the point and we will certainly produce ugliness. And quite rightly, the common public will reject what we are about as being uncommonly self-serving. The common good should be our goal. And we need to say, as a parenthesis here, we're not talking about the perfecting of the culture. Of course, in our personal lives, we pursue sanctification, but not because we believe that we will ever be perfect, right? But because it establishes for us the right direction of our thinking and our thoughts and our aspirations. And we do the same thing for our culture. We pursue the sanctification of a culture, or what scripture talks about as the discipling of the nations. Think about that. The discipling of the nations. What is that asking for? The perfection of society here on earth? I don't think so. But it's the disciplining and the discipling, the following of a path towards that which is good and true. Not because we know that we are going to make things perfect. After all, in the church, we don't anticipate making everyone a saint. 
but we establish the right direction. This is what it means to seek the peace of the city. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city, Jeremiah says. This is where God has put us. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. It is a common prosperity. We seek it together. T.S. Eliot recognizes this and puts it very bluntly. However bigoted, and so even in his day there was an awareness of how you know, bad this sounds, right? Even as you say these words, it sounds wrong. However bigoted the announcement may sound, the Christian can be satisfied with nothing less than a Christian organization of society. Which is not the same thing as a society consisting exclusively of devout Christians. It would be a society, and here makes a very interesting distinction, within the common good. It would be a society in which the natural end of man, in our sort of created orderliness, virtue and well-being in community, what Jeremiah said, prosperity, virtue, the good, well-being in community, prosperity, these things are acknowledged for all. Christians should want that for everyone, for their neighbors, whether Christian or not. We should want everyone to enjoy well-being in community, prosperity, and everyone to enjoy the good life. After all, we pursue life, liberty, in the pursuit of happiness. That is something we can get behind. This is acknowledged for all. But a Christian society would also recognize what T.S. Eliot calls the supernatural end of man. Because God didn't just create us to enjoy this life, but to be oriented to the life to come. Not everyone steps into that reality. That's why not everyone is a Christian. That is a beatific future, the beatitude. For those who have eyes to see, there must be a place for that within the Christian society. Certainly, there must be room for the church, room for Christian worship, not the suppression of that. But those are two distinctions there that within a Christian society should prevail. Eliot, I think, sees the common good as essential. We're talking about why a Christian future for our country might seem unthinkable. Perhaps the biggest reason, I think, we no longer talk of a Christian future for our country is because so many of our leaders are now speaking against it. And I have to say, I consider this, to be blunt, a failure of nerve. Now, it's unsurprisingly... Unsurprising that the secular elites think the idea of a Christian society is a horrifying idea. And they throw up many straw man visions of a theocracy like uh, the Ayatollahs of Iran and so on, or return to medievalism where we're stoning adulterers and so on. I mean, Look at the return to popularity of Margaret Atwood's novel, The Handmaid's Tale, you know, which I thought had happily 
left us into the tide of history, but it's been resurrected, you know, as a mini-series. And it's reawakening all these fears of what Christians might get up to if you give them too much power. It's a horrifying idea for many people. This sort of overreaction, I think we have become used to. But what surprises me is that there are many voices, even within Christian circles, who now are quite anxious about the idea of pursuing a Christian society. Some see it as a wrong-headed goal. You could pursue personal sanctification, but this idea of a Christian society... It's the wrong goal. After all, it's just nothing more than a seeking of power. Evangelicals should accept and even welcome minority status. Others feel, okay, it's fair enough as a goal, but we're going about it in completely the wrong way. We become... Uh, far too fixated on quick fixes, and particularly a political fix. We have failed to understand how society actually works. And if you want to tinker around and fix it, we need to get our sociological chops in better order. There are many books out today that pick up these themes. Perhaps one of the most influential is James Davison Hunter's book, To Change the World, which is an ironic title because he feels that that's the wrong aspiration, that we don't know how and we shouldn't really be in the business of trying to change the world. Others feel that we've tried and failed. We've tried and we've failed. And now we should really just retreat into a kind of monastic posture. Rod Dreher's The Benedict Option has generated a lot of discussion along these lines. Let's just retreat and lick our wounds and try to hunk it together as a minority. Now, all take it, all these books, take it as read that we are in a post-Christian culture. They take it as read that evangelical engagement in politics has been disastrous and counterproductive. And so we need a whole new paradigm for cultural engagement. We need to search for a new paradigm. We've lost our way. And so we are offered now a growing list of options. That's the favorite word. There is the Benedictine option, of course, but now we also have the Franciscan option, the Augustinian option, the Pietist option, the MLK option, the Gospel option, and so on. There seems no end. And even the traditional approach is now being labeled the Wilberforce option. Now, I think, as I said in my introduction, I think is in creating a great deal of confusion. Yes, there is some valid critique in these writings, 
and some valid observations and proposals. But the idea that any one of them presents a kind of new and captivating paradigm to replace how we've been operating, I think is misguided. It's leading to a lot of division, a lot of arguing, and a lot of disenchantment with the whole project. If our leaders can't kind of get it together how we should be engaged in this world, you know, why bother? And so collectively, in my opinion, what all of this publishing amounts to, in varying degrees, to be fair, we could spend a lot of time on each author, but in varying degrees, I think it is nothing less than a retreat, a general retreat. As I say, there are many good ideas, helpful insights in these books. I don't find any of them persuasive as a substantial paradigm change. I don't think we need a new paradigm. I certainly don't think we should retreat. Absolutely, there's lots of room to discuss our mistakes and our weaknesses and better tactics and refining what we're doing. But I see no reason to change the overall course of cultural engagement. Most of this, in my mind, amounts to a failure of nerve. What has brought this about? Well, it is true that this is a difficult moment. It's a difficult moment for evangelicals in our culture. The cultural elites that hold sway over much of our society have never been more hostile to Christianity. And most recently, of of course, the Supreme Court ruling in Obergefell that established uh, same-sex marriage has put many Christians on the defensive. The growing legal threats that some Christians face is also alarming. In the medical world, Christian conscience is under continuous threat. So it's a difficult moment, but there is no need to panic. Yes, progressive forces are in the driving seat at the moment, and one could argue they have been since the Enlightenment. And there's a degree of hostility that is a little bit new and uncomfortable, and that can be intimidating. But if you look through the 60s and the 70s, um, does anyone remember, I mean, radical feminism as a movement in the 70s and the 80s? Feminism righted a lot of very long-standing injustices. I don't mean to relitigate that. But in its radical form, it's no doubt that it posed a massive challenge to traditional Christian thinking. It also profoundly reshaped our society in ways that were really discombobulating for many people, sometimes in helpful and necessary ways, and sometimes in ways that opened up uh, things that were distressing from a Christian point of view. But the church, the evangelical community, rode out that period. Indeed, 
the Equal Rights Amendment did not get passed. Uh, many uh, older school feminists today are quite staggered at how the younger generation uh, view the work that they did. The idea that all the worst fears that we had of what it might be like in a post uh, sort of feminist culture did not materialize. And in fact, for many evangelicals, this was a prompt to maybe correct some blind spots of the past, but also to become more active also into the future. Many evangelicals, just as they had been brought into the political arena primarily through Roe v. Wade, similarly through these cultural movements of the 60s, actually found reason to get more engaged in the political process. They did not back off. The assertion, but the idea that, I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead here. Uh, And yes, during that re-engagement following uh, the 60s and 70s, mistakes were definitely made. There's no doubt about that. And many active in that period of time uh, even publicly have addressed that and written books. Leaders of the moral majority, the religious right, have admitted some of those mistakes. But the assertion that Hunter makes that conservative evangelicals had become, quote, functional Nietzscheans I mean, what a devastating indictment. You may not have agreed with tactics or attitudes, but functional Nietzscheans? Surely that's an overstatement. As I say, there's been an acknowledgement of political mistakes made. And after all, let's step back historically. Evangelicals were new to this. We'd only just come out of fundamentalist retreat in the 20s and 30s of, of the last century. Other traditions, the Catholic tradition, have been involved in the nitty-gritty of trying to deal with socio-political issues for centuries. So has the liberal Protestant tradition. Have mistakes been made there, I wonder? I certainly think so. Uh, (coughs) We do not uh, uh, condemn them for having a political or social conscience and wanting to be involved. Evangelicals were new to this, and undoubtedly that's part of why mistakes have been made. There's no more messy business, after all, than politics. And let's not forget, even before evangelicals sort of entered the political arena, primarily following Roe v. Wade, the neo-evangelicals left their fundamentalist past and entered the academy. People have forgotten this. This was the first step into the culture that our evangelical forebearers made. Out of fundamentalism, the first thing they did was step into the academy, following great leaders like F.F. Bruce in England and Carl Henry over here. And one can argue that mistakes have been made in the academy since. I think Hunter would have made a more plausible case if he had acknowledged 
and not only decried evangelical captivity to power politics, but also addressed evangelical captivity in the academy, which some would argue is an even more problematic mistake. The fact is, getting involved, whether it's in the academy or politics, is messy, it's difficult, and we will find ourselves conformed in certain ways that are not good. But we are not in there to be conformed, we're there to be transforming. The degree that we fail to do that is to be regretted, but it doesn't mean that the decision to step into the academy was a mistake. I don't hear anyone talking or calling, certainly not Hunter, for a pause in evangelical scholarship. But he has called for a pause in political engagement. I do not think this is a time to retreat from any field, from the academy, from politics, or from any aspect of the culture. Now, a main contention from many of these new voices is the charge that evangelicals have failed in their efforts. There was this culture war, and we lost. Some, as I said, think we didn't understand how culture works. For others, say, we've just been overwhelmed by the secular tide. But whatever the reason, we failed, and thus we need a new and different option. Now, I don't necessarily disagree that we have failed in large measure or even that many of the causes given are not, you know, right in certain respects. What I don't accept is that this matters. What I don't accept is that failure is somehow the problem. In our call to pursue a Christian society, as in our call to pursue personal sanctification, we will find lots of failure. We fail in big ways and small ways every day. Is this a reason to stop, to turn around, to retreat, to back off? Of course we'd rather succeed than fail, but since when was success the premise of Christian action? Let us not forget, after all, that Jesus failed. He failed to win over the crowds. They followed him for a while, and then we started getting into heavy stuff about divorce and so on, and said, no, it's too much. He failed to win them all over. When his teaching became hard, he failed to reform the entrenched religious and political powers of the day, the elites of his own day. After all, they conspired to kill him. They persecuted the church. His whole program seemed to end in abject failure. He failed to liberate the Jewish people from their Roman oppression, which even some of his disciples were very disappointed about. The mob eventually turned on him. In terms of social outcomes, Jesus failed to change his society. Except, of course, we know that 
We know that in terms of what really counts, he didn't fail. Because everything he did came from a pure heart. And he spoke truth to power. He gave himself in love. He was found approved by the Father. And whatever short-term temporal failures or unwelcome consequences might have arisen, we know in the long term the life-giving impact of his life and of course his death led to him being finally vindicated. Even the apparent defeat on the cross became a cosmic victory that did indeed change the world. I find it a sad irony that so much of the present unease about cultural engagement arises from evaluating our actions according to outcomes rather than according to principles. Shouldn't we be acting on principle, whatever the outcome? Is success our prime value? I think not. This is actually a kind of instrumental utilitarianism which is a hallmark of modernity, not Christianity, that only results matter, efficiency, outcomes, productivity. This is not Christian. And here I think the current critics of evangelical activism often show themselves to be just as captive to the spirit of our age as anyone, evaluating everything on outcomes. Success is not our aim, Faithfulness is. And even where we do have successes, that can be misleading. Some look back to the Wilberforce option because why? Well, Wilberforce freed the slaves, so that he must have got it right. Well, it's a very utilitarian approach, isn't it? Well, he had a success, we, you know, can do. That's how he did it. I don't like talking about the Wilberforce option because I think it focuses us too much on this idea of outcomes rather than essential principles. He got it right because he was grounded in biblical principles and pursued the biblical core. And actually he was right for the 39 years that he failed to end slavery. He was right every year that he failed to end slavery. For 39 years he was right because on principle he was opposing an evil. And he was actively working towards a Christian view of slavery. And in the 40th year, finally there was success. And of course we know there is unfinished business still. So even his success was not complete. So we should continue to stand against abortion. And work against it in every way that we can even though it's been well over 40 years. And success seems as far off as ever. As I say, I don't like this term, the Wilberforce option, because it it gives the sense that it was started by Wilberforce, like he got some new theological paradigm that he bought into. Not at all. I also am not interested in, for those who are in the debate on this, I'm not interested in defending Caperianism or Neo-Calvinism and so on. Christian engagement didn't start with Caper. 
True, it's appropriate to be reminded of our forebearers and the thought that they put in and the transformational vision of how we should engage our culture, I think stands, but it stands on Scripture and on the call of God and, as I said in my last talk, on the sending of God to be salt and light into the world for the sake of the world. I prefer to look into Scripture and there to find a principle, approach to engagement what is traditionally called the transformational paradigm of Scripture. And there, not to go too much into what I covered in my last talk, but we have the question put before us, should we stay in the world or come out? Remain actively engaged in the culture or retreat into a Christian subculture, a kind of monastic retreat. But I think this is the wrong question to ask. Yes, we may be a Christian minority now. Yes, we may have failed. But to suddenly say, well, should we remain engaged? Are we too in the world that we become conformed? Should we come out? I think it's to ask the wrong question. Even if we wanted to, we cannot escape this world. God has deliberately left us in the world. I am no longer in the world, he says in the high priestly prayer of John 17. But they are in the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Jesus makes it crystal clear that we are not going to be taken out of this world. Secondly, we are in fact sent into this world. As you send me, Jesus says, praying to the Father. As you the Father have sent me the Savior into the world, so I send them as Jesus was sent. In the same way, Jesus came in and came in with a mission, sent into the world for the world, so we should follow. Even though the world is, of course, a dangerous place, growing hostility, we can't be naive about that. We are sent in as sheep among the wolves. For the sake of the world, God sent his Son into the world sacrificially. He will send us in sacrificially. Jesus gave himself in love. We must give ourselves in love. So we must not think in terms of disengaging from the world. We find even when we do, we take the world with us. The world that we have to transform is both within us and around us. We never escape it. Christian formation is very fashionable these days, and it's certainly a good thing to aim at. But as Jamie Smith points out, uh, we need to recognize that we have already been formed by the world in which we find ourselves. We already have been shaped. So even the Benedictine monk in his cell cannot escape the world and worldly thinking and worldly feelings that arise from within his own heart. So in or out is not a decision that we have to focus on. We are in whether we want to be or not. The only decision before us is are we going to shape the world or is the world going to shape us? 
That's the critical question. That is the real culture war. It doesn't start with politics, it starts in the heart. Are we going to shape the world? Are we in the world to make it better, to make a difference, to shape it, to change it? Or are we going to be shaped by it? Are we working the world or is it working us? Are we transforming the culture or are we being transformed by the culture? This brings us to the preposition that really matters. What we really need to focus on is of. Are we of this world or are we of the Father? I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, Jesus prays. Just as I am not of the world. They are not of the world. We are created in the image of God. His creatures, we've been given new life in His Son. We have His word of truth in our minds. We have His sacrificial love in our hearts. He is with us by His Spirit. And He promises us that greater is He that is in you than He that is in the world. We are the children of the Father. We hear His word. We live out the life that he has given us. Being in the world ceases to be a problem because we are of God. It is he who is shaping us, not the world. We pursue personal sanctification. Whether we succeed or fail, whether we live or die, we live for him. Our identity is rooted in Him. And so we pursue the holiness He calls us to. We love our neighbors as ourselves. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. We no longer live as the Gentiles do. We seek the peace of the city. We disciple the nations. These are all part of the same tapestry that God is weaving through our lives as he works his sanctification and his salvation and his redemption into this world. Our operating paradigm, we don't need a new one, has already been given to us by Paul in Romans. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There you may test to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I could close the talk here, of course, but I want to return now to Eliot, for he has other things to teach us. He had this bold vision of a Christian future. I'd like to see us and our leaders step back into that kind of courage not be concerned about success or failure, but to continue to be a force for good in this world. But we can learn other things from Eliot. As I previously mentioned, already in Eliot's time, it was obvious that Western culture was adrift from its Christian roots. Christendom was long gone in European history. The effects of the Enlightenment and the forces of a progressive 
liberalism were eroding Christian beliefs and Christian behavior throughout Europe. Eliot already determined that his surrounding culture could no longer properly be called a Christian society. For the idea of a Christian society had been replaced by a different idea that was now driving society. But what does Eliot mean? Let me see how he expresses it. Our choice now is between a pagan and necessarily stunted culture and a religious and necessarily imperfect culture. So as he saw the sort of post-Christian development, he realized we either kind of hold fast to a Christian view, which he notes, he says, yeah, is necessarily imperfect, or we give way to a burgeoning pagan view, which here he calls a stunted culture. What does he mean by that? What is he talking about with a stunted culture? Well, since the French Enlightenment, the values of liberté and égalité, freedom and equality, began increasingly to reign in the hearts and minds of Europeans. And that formed this post-Enlightenment culture that by Eliot's time was already dominant and one might even say hegemonic. This post-Enlightenment culture with its freedom and equality produced a kind of progressive liberalism even in his day. But Eliot calls this a stunted culture or in another context he calls it a negative culture. And I think this is a really great insight. For the enlightenment freedom that was being pursued was entirely a freedom from. A freedom from a kind of medieval Christendom past. A necessary breaking of all the past authorities and traditions in the pursuit of freedom from. Similarly, the enlightenment equality that was being pursued was achieved by tearing down the past structures, barriers and borders that had been established in Christian Europe. In other words, in both of these liberté and Uh, Egalité, both of these projects were essentially a negation of what had come before, a negation of Christendom, a negating of the ordered structures and institutions and authorities of that civilization. But Eliot points out that there's no vision in post-Enlightenment thought of a freedom to, just freedom from or what basis we have for egality once we have rejected these past structures. Eliot points out that this post-enlightenment project had nothing to replace Christendom with. It had no positive agenda. 
and in this sense is purely negative. It is my contention that we have today a culture which is mainly negative and which, so far as it is positive, is still Christian. This is the idea of European culture still living on the memory of Christian thought. What positive affirming values actually had their roots in a prior uh, understanding, a Christian understanding. But what the post-enlightenment culture had to offer was purely negative. And so the impulse, which has continued right down to our day today, the impulse to continue simply simply looking for the next boundary to break, the next barrier to remove, the next line to erase, eventually becomes more and more purely destructive and leads to greater and greater social fragmentation and chaos. Eliot puts it this way, liberalism may be characterized as a progressive discarding of elements in our historic Christian past, which now appear superfluous and obsolete. But as its movement is controlled rather by its origin, namely fleeing from a past, rather than any future goal, it loses force after a series of rejections, that is a series of revolutions of overthrowing the past. But it has nothing left to destroy. It's now left with nothing to uphold and nowhere to go, which is our postmodern context. Nothing positive to posit, simply destructive. Now, can anyone doubt today that these same post-enlightenment progressive liberal forces at work in the Western world have not continued in this trajectory and have so absolutized the ideals of liberty and equality that it has reached a kind of madness. When your seven-year-old daughter is going to be encouraged to explore her sexual identity, her gender, decide what gender she wants to become, even one of the oldest and most basic naturally and scientifically embedded orders of our created world is now questioned. An order that every people, in every culture, in every religion, in every era, throughout history have recognized. But now it's entirely a matter of personal choice. This is freedom from, at a a level as I say, that approaches a kind of madness. Politically speaking, this can be described as progressive liberalism. But theologically, it's better described, as Schaeffer did, as secular humanism. Secular humanism. A turning away from God and the authority and the structures that he has given us to live by that are for our good, and a grasping of human autonomy, pursuing our human freedom in an absolutized way, whatever the costs, whatever dehumanizing, fragmenting consequences may come, we pursue blindly this path. But Eliot's insight, this is back in 38, remember, is that this essentially negative movement 
must eventually run out of steam because it is not positing anything positive. It begins to create a vacuum. Postmodernism in the academy is a vacuum. Now, in our socio-political environment, we increasingly see a vacuum in Europe and here as well. A dangerous vacuum. And this brings me now to the last point I want to draw from Eliot. He was writing at a critical time. 1938 is when he gave his lectures. War in Europe was imminent. Eliot knew it. And sure enough, just a year later, World War II started. Britain was facing not one, but two grave threats. The more immediate threat was German fascism, Hitler's Nazi party, already threatening military expansion. They'd gone into Czechoslovakia. But behind that, and this we forget as we read the 20th century, the 20th century was not dominated in the fight against Nazi fascism. There was also a wider and deeper and more longer-lasting international communism. Russia was the other threat that the West faced. Behind Hitler and his fascism stood international communism and Stalin's Russia. Communism had already displayed its global aspirations and its brutality under Stalin. These are the great, and Eliot articulates them as twin evils, the great evils that the West faced. What was Eliot's concern then in writing in 38? Of course he saw these twin threats as pagan, evil, and obviously to be resisted. But where was the West as they faced this evil? Where was the so-called Christian West? Eliot in his book was much more concerned, in fact, by the state of affairs in Britain and the displacement of a positive Christian culture and a positive Christian vision of the future. He was much more concerned about the displacement of that positive vision by a negative enlightenment culture. What he argues in his book is what profit is there in defeating paganism abroad only to have it grow at home? What's the gain in defeating totalitarianism abroad only to create a vacuum and thereby the conditions for it to grow at home? Therefore, Eliot saw only two options. A return to the idea and the ideal of a Christian future, a Christian society, or a descent into various forms of paganism. You see, Eliot's concern was not only for the inherent negative or destructiveness of this stunted or negative Enlightenment culture. He was also worried about the growing temptations in conditions like this, chaos, social fragmentation, no positive agenda, conditions that led themselves 
to turn to a strong, centralising force of authority that would re-establish order. This is how he put it. By destroying our traditional social habits, by dissolving their natural collective consciousness into individual constituents, freedom, legality. Liberalism can prepare the way for that which is its own negation that will actually undermine the very freedoms achieved. What does he look to? An artificial, mechanized, or brutalized control which is a desperate remedy for its chaos. Vacuum, nature abhors a vacuum. No positive agenda, there are others who have agendas who can step in and fill the vacuum. This is exactly what had happened after the French Revolution, which absolutized freedom at that point. After the bloody chaos of the French Revolution, it simply opened the way for Napoleon, the dictator, to step in and re-establish order and gain power. Dr. Schaefer was concerned about the same thing as he looked at what was going on in the late 20th century Western world. It's one of the major themes of his 10-part documentary series on the rise and fall of Western thought and culture. How should we then live? And he says this, we see two effects of our loss of meaning and values. The first is degeneracy, chaos, breaking down of all tradition and order and meaning and coherence, fragmentation. But we must notice that there is a second result of modern man's loss of meaning and values which is more ominous and which many people do not see. Society cannot stand chaos. Some group or some person will fill the vacuum and elites will offer us arbitrary absolutes and who will stand in their way. I find Eliot's perspective remarkable for who he was in his times and also salutary. 1938 or 2019 now, I guess. Is our situation any different? It's easy to focus on the threats abroad and to forget the danger in our own backyard. Certainly we have to take threats seriously. Uh, we live in a world radical Islamism, an expansionist communist China, an expansionist fascist Russia, nuclearized North Korea, Iran, and so on. It's a long list of problems that the West faces geopolitically. And standing against all these global evils is the West, led by the US, and apparently standing up for our Western values. Now what are those values? Or what have they become? Freedom, equality, democracy, I mean, within a Christian framework and in a Christian society, these values are good. But shot, shorn of that, absolutized, 
radicalized into a secular humanist framework, they offer nothing positive on which to stand. So like Eliot, I'm more worried about the situation at home, meaning in the West, than the situation abroad. And that brings me to my last point. Writing in 1938, Eliot was not fearful as he looked abroad at Hitler and Stalin, nor was he even panicked by what he saw at home. He realized these battles are always with us. What was his principal feeling in 1938 as he surveyed from his perspective what was going on? He tells us he was ashamed. He felt ashamed. It's an interesting feeling. And the source of Eliot's shame was the realization that in the face of such obvious evils, the West had so little to stand upon. It had nothing to match the passion and conviction driving these pagan forces. He said this, I believe that there must be many persons who, like myself, were deeply shaken by the events of September 1938, in a way from which one does not recover. The feeling which was new and unexpected was a feeling of humiliation, which seemed to act, demand an act of personal contrition, of humility, repentance, and amendment. It was not, I repeat, a criticism of the government. He was looking far beyond just governmental, you know, party politics but a doubt of the validity of a civilization. What had become of Western Christian society? We could not match conviction with conviction. We had no ideas with which we could either meet or oppose the ideas opposed to us. Christian conviction had been so eroded the negative forces of progressivism had so weakened British culture that it had nothing positive to offer, even in the face of such obvious evils as Nazism. Well, I have to say, this resonated with me so many years later as we look at our current, present cultural moment. I confess a similar sense of shame. The evils abroad are pretty obvious. But where is our Christian conviction here at home? What do we have to counter the zeal and passion of the forces at work that we confront? We claim to be a bastion of freedom, but it's an increasingly an ugly freedom. And at this critical moment, where the academy has pretty much undone itself, moving from modernity to postmodernity. And everywhere in politics, whether here or in Europe, we see populist revolts against the excesses of this progressive liberalism. We see a cultural vacuum that is simply begging to be filled with something intellectually credible, morally principled, life-giving, a positive and strong vision of a Christian society, committed to the common good. And at this moment, it seems many of our leaders are running up the white flag. 
That I think is a matter of shame. And that's where I'll end, but with a quick postscript, lest you feel too gloomy. If you want to read some excellent books, I've already mentioned the classic by L. Walters, Creation Regained. still stands up very well. More current just out last year is Bill Edgar's wonderful theology of culture, creating and create, Created and Creating, that moves seamlessly from the creation mandate to our transformational mission. And then best of all, you should, every one of you, buy this and read it, Os Guinness's little masterpiece, Renaissance, a massive encouragement in the confusion, an inspiring read in our moment in history. I'm not sure how much time I've left for questions, and I'm sure you probably have a lot, but I'm here for a while, so who would like to start? And let's have some discussion. We just have a short time. Yes. is where Elliot, in, in theory, sort of the way that Patrick Deneen has recently traveled, explains how the, the premises of liberalism from Locke and Hobbes onward um, deconstruct themselves. So you carry on that program long enough and you end up with a vacuum, like you said. Can, you, can we think of any examples in practice, though, in history, where that type of unraveling culturally happened and was, dis- was replaced by some sort of strongman, imperialist ambition, whatever. I, I can't, but I can easily think of how Germany was the most cultured civilization on earth before the Nazis rose. So it, it, it's hard for me to reconcile these historical examples with the theory. That, that Elliot was, was laying out. I get the idea that it could happen, but historically speaking, I can't think of an example. We could even talk about, in fact, uh, uh, the uh, overthrow of Tsarist Russia which also sort of opened the way for a new sort of totalitarian, modern, kind of modernist, uh, 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 internationalist kind of ideology, communism, you know, which continues today even in China. You know, so I think we have seen, and before Germany, you know, I mean, Russia fancied itself as the heir of Christendom, actually, under the Tsar. So I do think we've seen it proved. Now, is it going to be proved in every case? No, uh, we don't know that for sure. But we do see, of course, that, you know, as with North Africa, with uh, Constantinople, I mean, there are many places that at one time shone uh, as reflections of Christian ideals and Christian scholarship and Christian civilization, which are now, you know, a wasteland. Uh, and so that certainly can happen. You know, given and you know the rise and fall of civilizations, I think this is well-trodden 
not just from a Christian point of view, but as secular historians, that then we can see the rise and fall. You know, what precipitates the fall, what might step in? Yes, um, in many ways one might say that Eliot was proved wrong by what happened after the Second World War, in that the West defeated the enemies abroad and seemed to sort of not fall into paganism at home. But of course it depends how you read our present culture. Many would look at it and say we've already succumbed to a degree of, of kind of, in their sense, the mechanism or paganism. Those are words which don't have the same resonance today for us. But what they're really talking about is a kind of a, a secularist, dehumanizing culture. And I would say there's lots of examples, lots of evidence we've already stepped into it. And that vacuum is being exploited by populism. So, uh, but I think, you know, again, one doesn't have to have a necessary absolute sort of uh, an authority of some historic uh, theory of history, you know. I think the point I make is our, our core principles should remain the same. Success or failure. And that's what I loved about, I mean, if you get into the details of Eliot's book, I mean, he was in a different period and he's talking about the Episcopal Church and an establishment culture. I mean, it's, it, none of it relates immediately to us today. So I'm not looking for us to follow a kind of Eliot program. I'm just inspired by him, that he stepped into his moment, as others did, and, you know, try to offer positive leadership. And I just, I just find the current scholarly leadership absent in that positive way. I'm not saying they're not well-intended or don't have very important points to make, but I just feel there's so much to be gained by continuing to posit, uh, you know, what we have and what, what has been achieved through the you know, application of gospel principles in society. Any other question? Or? I'm sorry, there's a lot, and some are quite uh, provocative, I know. Well, I'm going to let you go, because I know um, I ran over time. Thanks for listening. For more information and updates about future conferences, sign up at nashvillelibreconference.com. Special thanks to the Rabbit Room Podcast Network for their know-how and hosting of this podcast. You can find their podcast network at rabbitroom.com. And a special thank you to my friend, Drew Miller, for providing the podcast music. You can find more about his upcoming albums, Desolation and Consolation, through his website, drewmillersongs.com.